From New York, this is Democracy Now! We will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. President Biden announces a student debt relief plan that could help as many as 40 million borrowers. Republicans decry the plan as student debt socialism, while many debt relief advocates say Biden's plan doesn't go far enough. We'll speak to Astra Taylor of the Debt Collective, who's just directed a new documentary short titled Freedom Dreams, Black Women and the Student Debt Crisis. The Debt Collective, which has been fighting for full cancellation, of course, doesn't think this is enough. But we know that this is a major milestone on the path to full student debt cancellation and transforming the way higher education is funded in this country. Then we go to Oklahoma, where the state is set to execute James Coddington, the first of 25 executions scheduled by Oklahoma over the next two years. We'll speak to Connie Johnson of the Oklahoma Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, as well as Sister Helen Perjan, author of Dead Man Walking. We have a terrible situation going on now. It's the, all the killings have been terrible by the state of human beings. But we have a man right now, James Coddington, who's in the torture chamber. It's all stone chamber in Oklahoma, where he was put 35 days ago to await his coming execution. And we look at how an ultra-secretive Chicago industrial mogul has quietly given $1.6 billion to the architect of the right-wing takeover of the courts, It's the largest known political advocacy donation in U.S. history. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's announced plans to cancel as much as $20,000 in student debt to help as many as 40 million borrowers. Response to Biden's student debt cancellation plan has been mixed across the political spectrum. Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders hailed the plan as a big deal, but added, quote, we have got to do more. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell condemned Biden's plan as student loan socialism. Meanwhile, many student debtors who owe far more than the $20,000 say Biden's plan doesn't go far enough. This is the artist and writer Maddie Clifford of the Debt Collective, who holds about $100,000 in student loan debt. Biden's announcement means that we need to continue to apply pressure because um, it's great that he's made that decision and he's made the right decision and he's going in the right direction. But also, as people, we don't have to accept crumbs. After headlines, we'll hear more from members of the Debt Collective on the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan. A federal judge has blocked portions of Idaho's trigger ban on abortion from taking effect. On Wednesday, District Judge B. Lynn Windmill struck down a provision of Idaho's law, making it a crime for a doctor to provide abortion care to a pregnant person facing medical emergency. Federal law requires hospitals participating in Medicare to provide abortions when a person's life is at risk. 
The remainder of Idaho's near-total abortion ban takes effect today, the same day that trigger bans on abortion affecting millions of people also go into effect in Texas and Tennessee. Two months after the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, one in three U.S. women don't have access to abortion in their states. In Ukraine, at least 25 people were killed and more than 30 others injured Wednesday as an explosion ripped through a train station in the east. Two children were among the dead. Russia's defense ministry confirmed the missile attack, but said only Ukrainian soldiers had been killed. The attack came as Ukraine marked 31 years of independence since the collapse of the Soviet Union by canceling public gatherings, citing the threat of Russian strikes on civilian targets. Here in New York, the United Nations Security Council met Wednesday to discuss the war in Ukraine on the six-month anniversary of Russia's invasion. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged an end to what he called Russia's senseless war. During this devastating period, thousands of civilians have been killed and injured, including hundreds of children. And countless others have lost their family members, friends and loved ones. The world has seen grave violations of international human rights law and international humanitarian law committed with little to no accountability. And millions of Ukrainians have lost their homes and their worldly possessions, becoming internally displaced or refugees. In Russia, police arrested a prominent opposition leader Wednesday on charges of discrediting the Russian army. Yevgeny Doisman, the 59-year-old former mayor of Russia's fourth-largest city, faces three years in prison under a new censorship law signed by President Vladimir Putin in March. Doisman said Wednesday his arrest came after he refused to describe Russia's war in Ukraine as a special military operation and instead publicly called it an invasion. In Ethiopia, the United Nations is calling for a renewed ceasefire after fighting erupted between government forces and separatist rebels in the northern region of Tigray. Both sides are accusing each other of being the first to break a five-month-old truce. The United Nations is calling for the resumption of peace talks and full access to the region, where some 30 percent of children face malnutrition amidst one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. In California, environmental regulators are voting today on a plan to ban the sale of new gasoline-powered automobiles by 2035, with only zero-emission vehicles and a limited number of plug-in hybrids available after that date. The decision by California's Air Resources Board will likely accelerate the U.S. transition to an electric vehicle fleet. Passenger cars that burn gasoline or diesel account for about 40 percent of U.S. transportation-related emissions. In Texas, the Uvalde School District has fired school police chief Pete Arredondo over his response to the May 24th mass shooting at Robb Elementary School, which left 19 fourth graders and their two teachers dead. Arredondo is the first law enforcement official to lose their job over the bungled response to the massacre. Video from the scene shows police under Arredondo's command waited one hour and 17 minutes before 
before they finally entered the classroom to confront the teenage gunman. In total, 376 law enforcement officers responded to the attack in Uvalde. The school board's decision to fire Arredondo came exactly three months after the massacre. It followed angry public calls for his ouster. This is 10-year-old Caitlin Gonzalez, a Robb Elementary School fourth grader who lost two of her best friends in the shooting. If a law enforcement's job is to protect and serve, why didn't they protect and serve my friends and teachers on May 24th? I have messages for P.R. Arredondo and all the law enforcement that were there that date. Turn in your badge and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. Pete Arredondo skipped Wednesday's meeting, saying he feared for his physical safety. In a statement, he called his firing an unconstitutional public lynching and demanded he be immediately reinstated with full back pay and benefits. In Oklahoma, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt has ordered condemned prisoner James Coddington to be put to death by means of lethal injection today, despite a vote by Oklahoma's Pardon and Parole Board to grant him clemency. Coddington is the first of 25 Oklahoma men scheduled to die over the next two years. Many suffer severe mental illness and had trials marked by racial bias and prosecutorial misconduct. It's Oklahoma's fifth planned execution since October, when it resumed the death penalty after a six-year hiatus that followed a botched execution in 2015. After headlines, we'll hear from anti-death penalty activist sister Helen Prejean and get the latest from Oklahoma. A new report finds nearly 50,000 prisoners across the United States are being held in prolonged solitary confinement, conditions the United Nations considers tantamount to torture. Researchers at Yale Law School found some 6,000 of the prisoners have been held in isolation for over a year. The U.N. Special Rapporteur on Torture says such practices are prohibited under, under international law and can lead to severe and irreparable psychological and physical consequences. In related news, Brown University says it's acquired personal papers of longtime prisoner and author Mumia Abu-Jamal, including his prison records, correspondence and artwork. The materials will anchor Brown's new Voices of Mass Incarceration collection at the John Hay Library, focused on first-person accounts of incarceration. In Columbus, Ohio, 4,500 unionized teachers have ended a four-day strike after reaching tentative agreement with the Columbus Board of Education. The deal will allow students to return to class next Monday. The teachers, librarians, counselors were seeking pay increases, smaller class sizes, and improvements to heating and air conditioning in classrooms. And in the occupied West Bank, a Palestinian hunger striker held by Israel is in critical condition and could die at any moment, according to the doctor who examined him earlier this week. Khalil Awalda has been on a hunger strike since March in protest of his so-called administrative detention, the Israeli policy of holding Palestinians without charge for up to years at a time. Awalda spoke to reporters from his hospital bed Wednesday. <laughs> My health condition is extensively deteriorating. I feel I am internally collapsing. I feel that my body is consuming itself internally in a strange manner. 
On Sunday, Israel's Supreme Court rejected an appeal by Awada's lawyers demanding his immediate release due to his failing health. His family called the court's decision a death sentence. This is Khalil's father, Mohammed Awada. When we first saw his picture on his lawyer's camera, we were surprised and shocked over his health condition. He now weighs 38 kilograms. He used to weigh 86. So what can he be other than skin and bones? Meanwhile, over 50 Israeli civil society groups have condemned Israel's raid on seven Palestinian civil society groups in the occupied West Bank last week. Israeli soldiers confiscated items and files before leaving behind notices declaring the groups unlawful. In October, the Israeli defense minister, Benny Gantz, labeled six of the group's terrorist organizations. Many international observers, including nine European nations, have condemned the designation. Even the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency rejected tying the NGOs to terrorism in a classified assessment, according to The Guardian newspaper. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's announced plans to cancel as much as $20,000 in student debt per borrower to help as many as 40 million people. The president outlined his plan during a speech at the White House Wednesday. If you make under $125,000, you get $10,000 knocked off your student debt. If you make under $125,000 a year and you received a Pell Grant, you'll get an additional $10,000 knocked off that total for a total of $20,000 relief. 95% of the borrowers can benefit from these actions. That's 43 million people. Of the 43 million, over 60 percent are Pell Grant recipients. That's 27 million people who will get $20,000 in debt relief. Nearly 45 percent can have their student debt fully canceled. That's 20 million people who can start getting on with their lives. President Biden also announced plans to extend a moratorium on all federal student loan payments through the end of this year. As Biden walked away from the podium, reporters shouted questions. Listen closely. Mr. President, is this unfair to people who paid their student loans or chose not to take out loans? Is it fair to people who, in fact, uh, do not own multi-billion-dollar businesses that see why these guys get them all attached Is that fair? What do you think? Response to Biden's student debt cancellation plan has been mixed. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren said, quote, Today is a day of joy and relief. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell condemned Biden's plan as student loan socialism. Meanwhile, NAACP President Derek Johnson has said, quote, canceling just $10,000 of debt is like pouring a bucket of ice water on a forest fire, unquote. Many student debtors also say Biden's plan doesn't go far enough. This is the artist and writer Maddie Clifford of the Debt Collective. And what we're doing with the Debt Collective is really pushing and applying that pressure because a full cancellation is, is also like, it's like, oh, you're asking for too much. You're asking for too much. I'm asking to be back at zero. I'm asking for a fair chance, like to actually build wealth. Like this isn't, um, they're, they're always telling us it's not enough. And, you know, two years ago, 10 K was a ridiculous thing to ask for. And now we've just won it. So what that tells us and what that shows us is that we have to keep fighting. 
Those are the words of the artist and writer Maddie Clifford speaking after President Biden unveiled his plan to cancel as much as $20,000 in student debt for millions of borrowers each. In a moment, we'll hear more from Maddie Clifford, who's featured in a short documentary from The Intercept titled Freedom Dreams, Black Women in the Student Debt Crisis. But first, we're joined by Astor Taylor, who co-directed Freedom Dreams. She's also an organizer with the Debt Collective, an organization with its roots in the Occupy Wall Street movement. She wrote the forward to the Debt Collective's book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. Astor Taylor, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, first, respond to President Biden's plan, the executive order yesterday. Well, it's important to be very clear that the Debt Collective has always fought for full student loan abolition and free public college for all to stop the crisis of student debt at its source. So that is our position. That's what we think needs to happen. But, you know, President Biden did not campaign on, on that. He was boxed in and forced to campaign promising some debt relief. This proposal he offered yesterday doesn't even meet uh, the full threshold of his campaign promise. Nonetheless, you know, it is a stepping stone for this movement. It's a, it's a milestone. So my reactions, you know, are mixed. It's bittersweet because assuming um, there, you know, there are some problems in terms of the fact that they are requiring people to fill out applications to get this relief, but assuming people uh, do that, then yes, up to 20 million people can have their balances wiped out. That's absolutely game changing. We're seeing messages from people, you know, uh, hearing from friends and family that they're crying, that their their lives have been changed. But also 10 or $20,000 for millions of people doesn't touch the interest that's accrued and capitalized. It won't reduce their monthly payments. And we need to keep fighting for those folks as well. And we will. So mixed reaction. But this is incredibly significant when you think about where we began uh, as a movement not that long ago. And what do you say to those who say this is bailing out the higher education uh, industrial complex, uh, that they should be lowering their tuitions? Uh, they've got uh, together billions of dollars in endowment. Why should they be bailed out? Well, we're definitely not bailing out the higher education system right now. We're bailing out human beings who have been told for decades that the only path out of poverty is to pursue an education. The United States has substituted you know, labor policy. We should have been strengthening unions, uh, providing a jobs guarantee with telling people, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, take out student debt, you know, so that you can then have the credential you need to be employed. Um, the, the thing is, again, these policies do need to be coupled, debt cancellation plus restructuring the political economy of higher education so that public colleges are actually public again and that people can go to school and pursue higher education if they want to without the burden of debt. Uh, but we're going to have to, uh, you know, fight that fight. So there's often a false opposition in the way people frame this thing. Um, and, you know, often people who point out the student debt cancellation doesn't get to the root of the problem have no intention of fighting for the solution again, which is free public college. But that's what we are going to do. That is the horizon that we at the Debt Collective and, and a growing uh, coalition of allies are working towards. Uh, Mitch McConnell saying President Biden's student loan socialism is a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save for college, every graduate who paid their debt and every American who chose a certain career path or volunteered to serve in our armed forces in order to avoid taking on debt, Astra? So cynical. I mean, first off, I am one of the millions of people who did have to pay their debts. I paid it in full. 
I do not want anyone else to have to suffer just because I did. Social progress means that other people do not have to suffer through something that uh, previous generations did. And the fact is, polling shows that most people have that attitude. Most people are not as selfish and cynical as Mitch McConnell. In fact, Student debt cancellation is more popular with people who didn't go to college than people who did, probably because they understand that the costs are rising so fast they're prohibitive. So this is something people are really celebrating. And of course, let's let's not forget that, you know, where was this uh, where was this grave concern uh, when uh million, you know, when, when large corporations and millionaires were getting forgivable PPP loans, which on average were worth about $90,000, where were they when the banks were getting bailed out, right? Where were they uh, when the government was buying billions of dollars of bad corporate debt? So it's just very cynical. And I think you can judge a policy by its enemies. The fact that people like Mitch McConnell, Betsy DeVos, um, and uh, others are so upset shows you that this is, for once, uh, a, a form of debt relief that's going to help working class and poor people overwhelmingly. Esther Taylor, I want to go to your new short documentary for The Intercept, Freedom Dreams, Black Women and the Student Debt Crisis, profiling black women educators and activists struggling under the weight of tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. It begins with former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. Let me give my testimony, if I might, if I may, that I am a first-generation college graduate, and I tried to break the cycle of poverty in my family's line. Everybody has a hope and a dream for better. And debt, because you decided to go and advance yourself through higher education, should not happen in no how, no way. Student debt punishes poor and working class people for pursuing higher education, ensnaring individuals and entire communities in compounding interest and fees. Today, student debt is a nearly $2 trillion weight, crushing 45 million people, with women, and especially black women, disproportionately burdened. Student debt is a trap, and it is also a teacher. Debt teaches us that education is a commodity, that we need to choose degrees and careers based on pay, that we are alone in our financial struggles, that we don't deserve to be free. I owe over $120,000 in dollars in debt and I basically I didn't talk about it and anytime I did I automatically felt ashamed I am probably about $80,000 in debt um, and up until recently I was I think my word was shame too but while you were talking Maddie I was actually like you know it's regret I decided to go to college because like I'm a nerd I love education I love school and I thought to myself well it doesn't matter how much it costs like it's going to pay off like I had to go to school I'm from a family of educators they were like the first generation and their family, you know, in our family. So it was like, you have the opportunity, you're going to college. I was really adamant on moving towards my career goals. And so I just like pushed myself into this master's program without thinking, how am I going to pay for it? 
A lack of intergenerational wealth and other structural inequities force women and black women in particular to borrow at disproportionate rates and wage discrimination makes it that much harder to escape. For every dollar white men make, black women earn 61 cents, a lifetime loss of almost one million dollars. We've been, you know, told working class people that as long as you get an education, then you will have job prospects. You'll be able to take care of your family. You'll be able to have a future. I really used to blame myself a lot and I used to feel a lot of shame. And then I started to look at the policies and I'm like, wait a second. Is it personal responsibility or is it really bad policy? And I realized it's bad policy straight up. (laughs) The inaccessibility to higher education preventing us from being able to take care of our families. The inaccessibility to higher education is keeping us in poverty. Student loan debt was never explained to me. There was never a person that sat down and said, hey, here's how you're going to pay for college. That means over time, we're growing further and further in debt due to these inequitable systems. I originally borrowed $203,000, and that balance has since grown to $238,000. I loved being in the classroom, but teachers just do not make enough money to survive in L.A. Ended up with a master's degree and then a doctorate, and then I became a principal, which is pretty much the highest position you can be at a school. And I'm still not making enough money to pay my student loan debt balance. I feel stuck between a rock and a hard place when I'm talking to my students about their plans for their post-secondary education goals. I'm teaching them to navigate the system in a way that I wasn't taught, but I'm still fearful for them. And there's days that I'm just filled with regret. That balance doesn't leave. That $238,000, it's there with me every second of every single day. You go work for these high-tech companies, you can make $250,000, $300,000 and not have to worry about how you're going to pay back this debt. I could have done that. I'm smart. I could have done that. But I took on this commitment to become an educator, and I'm being penalized for it. Actually, the roots of the student debt crisis started in California. Yeah, it started around the time of like the 60s and 70s when people were becoming really revolutionary. I mean, the Black Panthers were going to college, um, more women were going to college, and at the time, college was actually free in California. In 1966, Ronald Reagan, the newly elected governor of California, burnished his image by attacking the anti-war and racial justice movements taking root on university campuses. He proposed rolling back California's program of free public college and charging tuition. Taxpayers, Reagan said, should not be subsidizing intellectual curiosity. We have been and are providing a premium service, an education superior to most and equal to the best. So far, those receiving this education have not been required to share in the cost. When black and brown people started going to college in California, that's when you see public education fall away. So the burden of paying for education was placed on families. I feel like this is another way to block access to education. Our grandparents are coming off of integration. So we running up in those schools, black people, like we're gonna get our education. But now we still got this debt though. 
Anything less than full debt cancellation is a loss, especially for the most marginalized. How much debt do you have? You, you wanna- <laughs> we gonna talk about this? Okay, yeah, I'm not ashamed. So let's talk about it. I have 250K in student loan debt. I am a PhD and I'm now working. And I told you I was working at Harvard and I'm part-time and I'm not gonna be able to pay back 250K. I'm differently abled, so it took me eight years to get out of my undergrad because I wasn't well. And so the only path for me at that moment, which is I had to take a whole bunch of loans. For me personally, $230,000 worth of student loan debt means that I can't purchase a home. I was sold a myth in society that once I got my PhD, then I would be able to have upward mobility, that the access to generational wealth would open up for me. Upward mobility, that is a misnomer. Is that the word? Yeah, that works. (laughs) works. Upward mobility. It's a lie. That's a lie. (laughs) So this idea of good debt and bad debt, you just brought up homes. Mm -hmm. That good debt, we don't even have that. We can't even get the good debt. We can show get some bad debt real quick, though. Debt impedes our ability to dream, and I see that in my students. I wanted to be the educator that told the truth and the educator that unlocked dreams. If this system was no longer what we see right now, and we were able to not only imagine and envision something different, but we were actually able to embody it and do it, like, what does that look like? So a system where black women do not have to be subject to crushing debt is a system that would benefit everyone. An excerpt of the Intercept short documentary, Freedom Dreams, Black Women in the Student Debt Crisis, narrated by former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, co-directed by Astra Taylor, who we're speaking to today, organizer with the Debt Collective. So looking at a chart from the Department of Education, the percent of fourth-year undergraduate students aged 18 to 24 with student loan debt by race, African-Americans, 90 percent, Latinos, 72 percent, whites, 66 percent, Asian-Americans, 51 percent. Where do you go from here after the um, partial debt forgiveness that President Biden issued by executive order yesterday, Astra? We're going to keep fighting. The Debt Collective has been sounding the alarm about student debt and organizing on the basis that our debts are actually a source of power when we get organized. Individually, they can overwhelm us. But when we come together, we can use our debts as leverage to demand change. And we have done that stepping stone by stepping stone, beginning with our campaign with former Corinthian students. They were students who had been defrauded by the predatory for-profit chain. They launched a debt strike coupled with a creative legal strike strategy. We just won them earlier in the year after seven long years, full automatic cancellation for over half a million, uh, over half a million people. We built on that uh, after they went on strike. Students from ITT Tech, another predatory college did. They just won $4 billion of cancellation. And then this announcement from President Biden uh, that debt would be broadly canceled. Um you know, for for tens of millions of Americans. So we we've been building through strategy, through through strategizing and through creating solidarity among uh, among debtors, not letting us be divided and conquered. And so we're going to keep doing that. There's actually a debt strike launching because they have extended the payment pause, the payment moratorium until January 1st. So thousands of people are saying we're we can't pay. We're never going to pay. This cannot be the final extension of the payment pause. We have a growing number of debtors uh, joining the movement, including 
uh, a growing number of older debtors who are suffering under uh, these enormous six-figure burdens. Older people are often left out of the debate. It's actually the fastest-growing demographic of student debtors. So we've launched uh, a 50 over 50 debt strike that is already in the hundreds now, uh, just in a matter of days. So the fight's going to keep going. Um, and we're going to uh, continue also our work on medical debt, back rent, and bail debt until we can win a society where people are not forced into debt just to survive. Astor Teller, I want to thank you for being with us, organizer with the Debt Collective. We will link to your new short documentary, Freedom Dreams, Black Women in the Student Debt Crisis. Next up, to Oklahoma, where the state is planning to execute a person a month for the next two years, starting today. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. In Oklahoma, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt has ordered the execution of James Coddington to go forward today, despite a vote by the state's pardon and parole board to grant him clemency. This marks Oklahoma's fifth execution since October, when it resumed the death penalty after putting it on hold in 2015, after prison officials botched an execution by using the wrong lethal drug. Coddington's the first of 25 Oklahoma men scheduled to die over the next two years. Many suffer severe mental illness, had trials marked by racial bias and prosecutorial misconduct. After Coddington, the state had planned to execute Richard Glossop, but the governor delayed his death until December, so an appellate court can consider new evidence that supports his longtime claim of innocence. So Oklahoma next plans to kill Benjamin Cole, diagnosed with schizophrenia and catatonia. In a minute, we'll go to Oklahoma City. But first, we turn to one of the world's most well-known anti-death penalty activists, sister Helen Prejean, author of Dead Man Walking, an eyewitness account of the death penalty. She spoke to Democracy Now! Tuesday night about Oklahoma's scheduled execution spree. We have a terrible situation going on now. It's the, all the killings have been terrible by the state of human beings. But we have a man right now, James Coddington, who's in the torture chamber. It's all stone chamber in Oklahoma, where he was put 35 days ago to await his coming execution. He can hear right next door as yesterday, they did a mock, mock execution. He could hear everything going on. He has bright lights on him 24 hours a day. He has three video cameras trained on him. His phone has been taken away from him, and he's been removed from companionship of all of his people on death row, awaiting his death. We in the United States have a Supreme Court cannot read the words. They cannot interpret the words in the Eighth Amendment about not 
punishing people with cruel punishment. They have not been able to recognize the torture that that happens to conscious, imaginative human beings put in a tiny cell as big as a small bathroom, 20 years or more to await their killing at the hands of the state. James Coddington awaits his death tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning. And he follows a whole number of people, 113 that Oklahoma has killed. Why is it that at this time, the attorney general of the state felt that he could schedule 25 human beings to be killed over the next two years, roughly one a month? Why did he feel he could do that? What is behind his doing that? We have this this way that the Supreme Court has set up the death penalty, that they give discretionary power, complete discretionary power to prosecutors to seek death or not. It's in the hands of a frail, individual, biased, politically driven human beings to decide if people die or not. I think the AG of Oklahoma is aping what former President Trump did with his attorney general, William Barr, when he announced he was going to kill 13 people on federal death row before he left office. There had been 17 years, had been no federal executions. How did those 13 human beings suddenly get word that they were going to be killed and, and within six months? And indeed, they were. They were all killed. Why? Because the one in charge, the one with the power to prosecute, decided, for whatever reasons, political reasons, whatever reasons, that they were going to die. Greg, when the Supreme Court set up the death penalty, it had default lines in it from the beginning. It was bound to fail that we would have these pockets of prosecution arbitrarily happening around the country, as has continued today. First, they put an impossible criteria supposedly to set a guideline to narrow it down for juries, not to give the death penalty for what they called ordinary murders. Who knows what that means? Only for the worst of the worst. And coupled it with this discretionary power of prosecutors, we see it happening in Oklahoma now. Our death penalty is broken It always was from the beginning. It could never be fair. The courts are clogged. I know a woman on death row in California waited 19 years before the Supreme Court even reviewed her case. We have a million reasons why we have to stop this thing. I hold in my heart tonight James Coddington in that stone cell awaiting his death tomorrow. I recognize that this is torture and an abuse of human rights. In time, with our help, as we continue to get the word out, the American people are going to see that, too. And we are going to end this thing. That's the world-renowned anti-death penalty activist sister Helen Perjan speaking to us from New Orleans last night. For more, we go to Oklahoma City, where protests are underway ahead of today's execution scheduled 10 a.m. local time, the first of 25 executions set to take place nearly every month for the next two years. What's been described as a mass scheduling of executions. We're joined by Connie Johnson, retired Oklahoma state senator, on the board of the Oklahoma 
Oklahoma coalition to abolish the death penalty. She herself lost a family member. Her brother was murdered in 1981. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Connie Johnson. Thanks so much for joining us. Talk about the planned execution today. Uh, tell us who Coddington is. And, um, I mean, you have the former director of the Oklahoma Department of Corrections, Justin Jones, clergy, Democrats, Republicans, all demanding that his execution be stopped. But Kevin Stitt, the governor, has denied his clemency. Tell us the story and why. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Yes, we are in that space where James Coddington clearly murdered someone. And um, however, during his time of incarceration, he has been a redeeming individual. He has, you know, he's been a role model to so many. And based on that uh, reality, he and his attorneys have requested mercy, basically. Uh, we have a pardon and parole board that is very uniquely composed in terms of the number of law enforcement field representatives there, uh, and three to two, a guy who would never normally vote for clemency, uh, believe that James Coddington deserves mercy. So this is an issue of mercy. And, and um, Justin Jones, a friend of mine, I uh, was glad to hear him speak out as a warden, I mean, as a director of corrections who had to oversee uh, executions in Oklahoma. Um, our history of botched executions and certainly our history of wrongful convictions, uh, like Sister Helen said, gives great pause for concern. So I myself, my family, uh, family members of a murder victim and the, the opportunity to uh, have this person who killed my brother in 1981 at Langston University, Oklahoma's only HBCU, give a shout out. Um, the guy um, was not even uh, convicted, let alone given the death penalty. But there was an option given to me of the streets taking him down. And I couldn't say yes, uh, because it, it wouldn't bring my brother back. Fast forward 20 years, I went through a process with families of murdered children in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, whereby I forgave the guy, Darren Smith of the Bahamas, who killed my brother. I hope to meet him again one day, but it gave my heart freedom. And I don't know about the rest of my family, but at that point, my life took off. I became a state senator. I introduced legislation to abolish the death penalty. Just believing and knowing uh, and understanding that it costs more to to kill someone that uh, in Oklahoma is racially, geographically, and economically uh, discriminatory. We get it wrong here often. I I helped uh, exonerate two people from death row, um, and we also uh, have, like she said, severe cases of prosecutorial misconduct. Um, and then the botched executions. Um, we had a moratorium for a while on executions. And then um, I think three people were executed. And uh, in two cases, the cases of the two black guys who were executed, the, the drugs, something went horribly wrong. And can you tell us who Richard Glossop is? 
Um, he has faced one um, execution warrant after another. Um, uh, he continues to con to say that he is innocent. Um, what about this case? A whole television series has been made about his case. Sure. I, I think to talk about all of the cases in Oklahoma, you have to talk about the elected officials and like Sister Helen referenced, the, the political aspects behind these death penalty cases. We had uh, uh, a DA cop named Bob Macy, uh, who was known as the, um, the hanging DA or whatever, but uh, known for prosecuting people and getting convictions. Uh, we've had uh, candidates for governor uh, who oversaw 34 executions that, you know, and these were Democratic candidates for governor. Uh, so the political aspects of this is real. But um, the um, for, for most of Oklahoma, um, it's a matter of lack of education. Uh, as an advocate, again, I was I was chair of the coalition to abolish the death penalty at the time Richard Glossop's case originally came to light. And the DA uh, at that time, David Prater, uh, you know, like I said, was politically motivated. And so Mr. Glossop has, has um, you know, been able to escape execution. Uh, it was interesting that the governor um, granted a, a temporary stay interestingly, until after the election. Um, but, you know, and Oklahoma is a pro-death penalty state. We, uh, in 2016, put it in the Constitution. I led the, the campaign to keep it out of the Constitution. And, you know, we were predicted to lose by 75-25, uh, but through a process of education, like I said, about the reasons that the death penalty doesn't work, we were able to make that margin 68 to 32. I think the recent Julius Jones case raised a lot of awareness and, and the efforts of, of movie stars and local personalities like J.B. Williams um, really put that case on the forefront. And we, I believe we have even fewer people who support the death penalty now. I would be in support of, of floating a question one more time to take the death penalty out of the Constitution. But the political implications of cases like Richard Glossop, um, who did, in fact, claim, he still claims his innocence, uh, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, withholding information, everything that could possibly lead to a wrongful conviction, I believe, applied in Mr. Glossop's case. So I just think the contrast between what the governor has done for Mr. Glossop, how he's approving or how he's going ahead with Mr. Cottington's execution, um, those things are all they have to have a political backdrop. Um, Let's go to the Oklahoma death row prisoner, James Coddington, set to be executed today in his own words. Here he's pleading to the pardon and parole board earlier this month. I choose to try to help in any way I can to keep the younger guys that come in from, from making the mistakes that I made when I was first young in here. And like Ms. Hunt said, I had a lot of misconducts when I was in my teenage years here. I haven't. 25 years I've had one. And there's a reason for it. I can't apologize enough for, for what I did. 
if for someone to say I don't care and that I have no remorse is the only thing that, that I have to say is not true because I've never forgot Al. He was one of my friends and he tried his best to help me anytime I needed it. <laughs> and for that, he lost his life. Everything my attorney has told y'all about me today is me. If I deserve to live, it's in those hands. If I don't, it's also in your hands. That's about all I can say. I don't know what else to say. That was James Coddington's plea to the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board, which would later vote three to two, recommending Coddington be granted clemency by Governor Kevin Stitt, which he denied this week. Um, as we wrap up, um, 25 men are slated to be killed one a month for the next two years. Connie Johnson, your final thoughts. Yes, I hadn't heard Mr. Coddington's uh, uh, conversation, and it, um, it it reveals the trauma that's at the base of so much that's wrong in Oklahoma. Um, and clearly, we are just calling for mercy. May, I want to be clear that uh, the Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, uh, the Death Penalty Alliance, of which I'm a, also an affiliate member, we don't want anyone executed. And what's going to happen today, what appears to going to happen today, is not in our best interest as a state. I'm, I don't want the state of Oklahoma, I don't want Governor Kevin Stitt murdering James Coddington in my name. And um, we'll keep our fight going. I think the fact that you'll see displays of 25 crosses here in Oklahoma City, uh, there there be vigils. I have one this morning at nine o'clock uh, with the Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, um, and and certainly over the course of these next potential twenty five uh, executions, uh, the voices of Oklahomans will start to be heard better. And I, as one uh, under my company, Advocacy Works, will be right out there on the front line. Connie so, Johnson, I, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Retired Oklahoma State Senator, former chair of the Oklahoma Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. Coming up, we look at how an ultra-secretive Chicago industrialist has quietly given $1.6 billion to the architect of the right-wing takeover of the courts, the largest known political advocacy donation in U.S. history, back in less than 30 seconds. First time 
Whenever I Saw Your Face, performed by Acker Bilk. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. As we end today's show, looking at how an ultra-secretive Chicago industrial mogul has quietly given $1.6 billion to the architect of the right-wing takeover of the courts, the largest known political advocacy donation in U.S. history. In a stunning expose, ProPublica and The Lever have revealed how Barry Side a 90-year-old conservative industrialist from Chicago has given his fortune to a nonprofit run by Leonard Leo, the co-chair of the Federalist Society. Leo's played a key role in helping Republicans reshape the federal judiciary. He's been described as Donald Trump's Supreme Court whisperer for his role in pushing for the nomination of Justices Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch. We're joined now by Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter at The Lever. He's the co-reporter, along with ProPublica's Andy Kroll, and Justin Elliott on this new expose inside the right's historic billion-dollar dark money transfer. You know, it's difficult to even find pictures of Barry Side online. Tell us about this historic um, money shift. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so what we've reported is uh, on how Barry Side, a, a pretty uh, unknown businessman from Chicago, uh, donated his uh, his really his entire business empire to a nonprofit uh, run by Leonard Leo, um, and which then sold the company, um, which was called Triplate, for 1.6 billion dollars. Um, it's you know we believe it's the biggest ever uh, donation to a politically oriented dark money group in U.S. history, um, and you know the way this transaction was uh, designed, um, it shielded uh, aside from paying roughly. Uh, we believe up to four hundred million dollars, um, which you know then became a public subsidy effectively for uh, this nonprofit, this conservative advocacy group run by Leonard Leo, the man who, uh, as Trump's judicial advisor, uh, successfully flipped the Supreme Court uh, and helped uh, build a conservative supermajority there that just recently uh, overturned federal protections for abortion rights. So. Um Talk about his company, how you got this tip, and what it means, uh, this transfer of wealth. Sure. Um, so this company is called Triplight. Um, it's an electronics manufacturer. Um, they make, like, surge protectors and, and equipment um, that are sold uh, for, you know, both kind of at-home use and then also commercial, like, data centers. Um, and we, we learned about this um, just from uh, a source who provided us documents detailing the transaction, um, just showing uh, how, how, you know, Side uh, managed to build a an unprecedented war chest for, uh, you know, uh, an already highly successful uh, conservative operative. So Barry Side, whose name is spelled what? B-A-R-R-E-S-E-I-D, um, uh, has donated over the years. Um, talk about his role in distributing DVDs titled Obsession, Radical Islam's War with the West during the 2008 presidential election. Yeah, he was uh, believed to be the donor, and actually the reporter on that story uh, worked with me on this one, uh, Justin Elliott. Um, he was believed to have donated $17 million to this group called the Clarion Fund that uh, distributed uh, those DVDs, this this really anti—this uh, this really Islamophobic campaign um, during the 2008 campaign. Um, you know, the—, the his team always kind of denied that. Um, they've, they've always worked very hard to uh, donate money 
behind the scenes. We, what we've learned is that he is both has become exceedingly wealthy. Um, he was earning, you know, up to 150 million dollars a year uh, in recent years uh, from mostly from Triplight, um, and he he was also giving behind the scenes just a pretty massive amount of money. He donated between 1996 and 2018, uh, we believe, around 775 million dollars. Uh, he claimed that much in charitable deductions. So the the number could be actually higher than that. So um, the Washington Post uh, reported George Mason University Law School changed its name to the Antonin Scalia Law School due to a $10 million donation from the Charles Koch Foundation and a $20 million grant from an anonymous donor, and that the name change was a condition of the anonymous donor's gift. The activist group Uncoke My Campus later discovered the anonymous donor was Barry Side. Talk more about what he has done and what this means to work with Leonard Leo. Yeah. Well, so we believe he was that donor um, who, who funded the, the, the name change at the George Mason University Law School. Um, and that, that gift was uh, apparently coordinated by uh, Leonard Leo. Um, we, we know that their relationship, their professional relationship, uh, stretches back at least a decade. Um, they, they served on a uh, small Chicago charity together uh, on the board of that organization, uh, that which which Side had funded as well. Um, you know, we also know that Side has been, or we believe that he has been a, a big donor to the Heartland Institute, which is a kind of climate denial, uh, infamous climate denial group. Um, but you know, this this is still um, the the clearest indication of of his. Gift and, and the immense amount of trust that he has in Leonard Leo. You know, he put really his entire business fortune in the hands of Leonard Leo to deploy uh, at, at his discretion. Who has changed the shape, the face of the federal judiciary, not to mention the Supreme Court. Now, your news organization, Lever and ProPublica, tamed a photo of Barry Side that shows him as a 14-year-old walking with other students at the University of Chicago. He was among a group of high school sophomores admitted to the university through an accelerated undergraduate program. Uh, talk about the possible impact of the Chicago School of Economists um, on his thinking, and also so, um, about uh, the, uh, what, side dodging up to $400 million in state and federal income tax. Um, from your piece, you write, side transfer trip light to the Marble Freedom Trust, a nonprofit that's exempt from income tax, federal income tax, um, before Electronics Company was sold. As a result, lawyers say he avoided up to $400 million in state and federal income tax, preserving those funds for Leo's new operation. Yeah. Um, well, so, so Barry Side is, is quite old. He's, uh, he's 90 years old. And so he actually attended the University of Chicago as uh, like, <laughs> like uh, back right around at the start of the uh, Chicago school. We, we do understand that he's a pretty big fan of Milton Friedman. Um, but, you know, so, so this uh, transaction was all structured in a way that, um, you know, really gamed uh, the, the rules around uh, donations to uh, nonprofits donating appreciated property. If, if he had sold this company, um, you know, for $1.6 billion, he probably would have owed uh, up to $400 million. Um, by, by structuring it this way, by having the trust sell the nonprofit or trust sell the company, um, it, it 
saved him a, a pretty hefty tax bill, and it also then really preserved the amount of money that would be available uh, for for Leonard Leo's new group. And you know, I should I should stress that this money all came after um, his his network and Leo um, had successfully remade the Supreme Court, uh, building a conservative supermajority there. So this is all money that can really be used towards the future, towards uh, building and expanding the conservative movement. We have five seconds. Why do you think it's critical the public know? I mean, we think that the public should know, you know, all of these donations, these uh, like all, all donations. Andrew Paris, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. We'll link to your piece.